Good morning and welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, We are starting our Advent series, which is a bit odd, I know, because last week was the first uh, Sunday of Advent. Um, But on account of having to cancel because of the storm, uh, we're starting this week. So I figured I'd just uh, preach two sermons today. We'll catch up. Just kidding. Um, But we are still going to get all four Advent sermons in. We'll just go one more Sunday after Christmas. So we'll preach through the next four Sundays from the Gospel of Luke, looking at uh, really the announcements, the angelic announcements. Uh, The Sunday right before Christmas, we'll look at the birth announcement by Luke himself when uh, uh, Jesus was born. Um, But other than that, we'll look at angelic announcements to Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth about the birth of John the Baptist, Um, the angelic announcement to Mary about uh, the coming birth of Jesus, and then the angelic host who announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds. That'll be the last uh, sermon, and then right before that, we'll look at the actual birth narrative uh, on the Sunday before Christmas. So that's where we're headed. Uh, So this morning, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at chapter 1. Verses 5 to 25. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, uh, verses 5 to 25. You can find it printed for you in your bulletins, or you can follow along in your Bibles. Uh, Hear God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, 
And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. That you reveal your glory and your power and your love to us. And Lord, we thank you particularly at this time of the year uh, for the birth, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And we rejoice in his coming. Because in his coming means his dying and his rising again. And in him we have life and forgiveness of sins. And so we give you all praise and glory and thanks. Lord, help us to understand your word this morning as you speak to us. And may your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am not particularly good with silence. Um, I tend to fill it. I'm impressed with those of you out there who are good with silence. You'll be in a small group or something, and you'll pose a question, and you'll just sit and wait. I I can wait maybe five seconds, and then I have to jump in. I don't like the void. Silence is a a really powerful thing. Uh, It forces us to think and consider or wonder or anticipate One place that I've noticed the effectiveness of silence is uh, before a performance. If you go to, say, the symphony or to a a concert, and in that moment when the lights dim and the crowd quiets and there is this moment of silence, it causes this great anticipation, right? Now, you might wait a minute or two, but if you wait five minutes, ten minutes, say 15 minutes... At a certain point, the din will start to come back to the, to the space. People will start whispering in hushed voices, wondering what's going on. Why aren't they playing? If you ended up waiting for 40 minutes or so, people would start leaving and talking out loud. What happened? We should go figure out what's going on. Uh, so silence can cause this kind of wonder and consternation. In our text this morning... In order to understand it, I think we have to understand that it begins in silence. The silence is the silence of God. For 400 years, God did not speak. Now, he had spoken, and they had the prophets, and they had uh, the writings, and they had the Torah, But God, for the last 400 years, had not spoke. Nations and empires have come and gone, and Israel had been run over by many of those nations and was now under Roman rule. Herod the Great was appointed uh, by Mark Antony. I don't need to go into all the Roman history, but there was no emperor in the moment that uh, Herod the Great is appointed. There was uh, basically three generals who were essentially dictators, Buying or ruling over different parts in the end. Um, after all of that, Augustus comes to power. But you don't need to know all of that. Just know that Mark Antony um, was uh, the one who appointed Herod the Great. Uh, and Herod was put over Judea. 
He was himself partially Jewish. He was raised a Jew. He was responsible for some of the greatest architectural builds uh, in, in Israel at that time. And one of the greatest of those builds is uh, the temple. He built a glorious temple, um, rivaling the glory of Solomon's temple of old. Remember, Solomon's temple was destroyed when Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem. The people were taken away when they returned. They rebuilt the temple, but it wasn't much. So when Herod came back, one way to garner uh, affection from the people was uh, to rebuild the temple in glory and splendor. But Herod, uh, though he was Jewish, at least in some form, was also uh, not always the most faithful Jew. And, and I would say part of the problem of 400 years of silence is that there becomes this sort of lackadaisical nature, at least among some of the Jewish people, uh, a group of them called the Herodians, ones who followed Herod, lived a somewhat decadent lifestyle. God was no longer speaking. They still lived their outward religiosity, but there was a certain level of hedonism involved in their religiosity. Now, of course, there were Pharisees and zealots and others who continued to look for uh, the coming Messiah and continued to live zealously for the Lord. But nevertheless, there was, after 400 years, a decadence that had entered into life in Israel. Well, and amidst this silence, there were some who did continue to be faithful. We see them here in our text, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're described for us here as those who were righteous, as ones who uh, lived blamelessly before God and obeyed all the commandments and statues. Yet, if anyone had a right to complain, to throw in the towel, so to speak, because God had been silent, it was this couple. Here they were. They had been faithful. They were from uh, the line of Aaron, but both of them, uh, Abijah being one uh, partial of the line of Aaron. And so they were part of that priestly class of people. And they were in many ways uh, uh, giving themselves over to the service of the Lord on a daily basis. And yet in the midst of that work, they were saddened with the reality that they could not have children as time went on and they had to bear the shame and reproach of not having a child as they waited and as they longed for the coming Messiah. This morning as we celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus to earth on this first slash second week of Advent, I want us to see that though it may seem for a time that God is silent, God, in fact, is not silent. God speaks, and he has proclaimed good news to us. And this morning, I want us to listen and to hear the good news that shatters the silence, because we're going to see that in the text. And we're going to do this in three parts, first by focusing in on the barrenness and the silence the pain, if you will, of the text. And then secondly, we'll, we will look at how God breaks the silence and gives life. And then finally, I want us to wrestle with doubt and faith. As we see that in the text as well. Doubt and faith in response to the words, the announcement, the proclamation of good news 
uh, the proclamation of life. But first, barrenness and silence. I've already noted that Zechariah and Elizabeth had every reason to give up hope. I've already mentioned that Zechariah was a priest. Um, and he married a woman, Elizabeth, who was also from the priestly line of Aaron. And in many ways, uh, when they were young, they probably thought this is a marriage match made in heaven. They uh, probably went in with full gusto to their, to their life together. Um, and when the mar- marriage announcement went out, maybe it went out something like this. Daughter of priest or Levite of the line of Aaron marries a soon-to-be priest of the line of Abijah. Well, what, I mean, that's like... The power couple. Maybe in their youth, they set out in their roles with eagerness. Maybe with the anticipation to think about their role as, as pointing forward to the coming Messiah. As they exercised, as he particularly exercised his gifts as a priest. But then life sets in, doesn't it? For, for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Life sets in for them. Uh, First, they're living under Roman rule, which is a constant thorn in the side of the people of Israel. Herod was, as called Herod the Great, wasn't all that great. Um, But more significantly, their friends and family probably began to talk about them or to them. Why don't you have children? What have you done that you are not able to have children? Maybe there is some sin in your life. You get those echoes of the friends of Job. Maybe there's some sin in your life uh, or something that God is angry with, that God is punishing punishing for you that you don't have children. The fundamental question is for them, what is wrong with you? You see, not being able to have children for anyone is a painful thing. It's exceedingly hard for those of us who have children to understand that pain. So I just want to encourage you, if you you have children and you see someone who isn't able or doesn't, and you don't know the reason, just realize it's it's a painful thing. We can't understand the kind of pain. But added into that, all of us generally struggle with that kind of thing. The cultural milieu of the day was that the assumption that the couple in some way was at fault. We see this in the text. In verse 13, uh, or at the very end, when finally, in verse 25, when finally she's comforted, Elizabeth says this, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. Reproach. They had every reason to be bitter. And angry with God. In verse 13, the angel Gabriel indicates that they had been praying for a child. I'm sure. Presumably for a long time, right? And we can imagine those heart wrenching prayers. And I don't doubt that some of you here have prayed such prayers. The kind where through tears you plead with God and cry out to him. And then wonder if he has heard you. Or wonder whether you've done something. Or have committed some wrong that he is punishing you for. And that he's closing off fellowship with you. And you wonder all those things and you cry out to him. 
My God. My God. Sometimes we feel that God is not responding to us, that he is silent because he's angry. He's displeased with us. These two had every reason to give up hope, but the text says of them, they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They didn't have a child. But the text is clear. Luke is being clear here. It wasn't because of anything they had done. As we'll see in a moment, God was preparing to use them as a demonstration of his power, of his glory, and of his love. In the midst of God's timely silence, these two remained faithful. And this story of barrenness and silence is really much bigger than Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth is not the first woman in Scripture who is advanced in years and who is barren. Go all the way back to Abraham, right? Sarah was advanced in years and unable to have a child. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was barren at the beginning and was unable to have a child. Rachel Jacob's wife, Jacob, who was born to Isaac and Rebecca, um, was also barren. And if you jump forward a little bit, Hannah, Elkanah's wife, was also barren. Not only that, but she bore uh, the ridicule of her, other, her husband's other wife, which is a whole other ball of wax, the kind of pain that that would have caused. Yet in each of these women, God used barrenness as a way of showing his power, his glory, and his love. Sarah bore Isaac, the promised seed. Rebecca bore Esau and Jacob, twins, Jacob through whom the promise was given. Rachel bore Joseph and Benjamin, Joseph who saved God's covenant family from drought and starvation. And Hannah bore Samuel, the prophet and priest of God who helped deliver God's people from the Philistines and anointed the kings of Israel, Saul, and then King David. And the question is, why does the Lord use this means to show his glory, power, and love? Why barrenness? It's a painful picture, isn't it? Well, I think the story goes back. It goes all the way back, right? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve sinned and fell. Mankind fell into sin, and the curse of the fall tragically affected everything, including childbearing. Part of the curse was the pain in childbearing. And oftentimes we think of that in terms of the actual physical pain of childbearing, and I do think that's part of the curse, But I think included in that is the pain of not bearing a child. Everything that goes with it. The pain of not giving birth can be equally, if not more, painful. Barrenness and pain were symbols 
of the life-taking power of sin in this world. As broken sinners apart from God's grace, we are all of us unable to produce life. Barrenness is a symbol of that reality. We don't have the power to produce life. We are all bound as humans for the grave. We are dust to dust. As broken sinners, apart from the grace of God, we are all of us. What does Scripture teach us? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But God, but God, in order to show his power, glory, and love, gives life to the barren. It's a picture. And this brings me to my second point, that God breaks the silence of those 400 years, and he brings life. Zechariah was uh, chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And I just want to note a few things uh, about this procedure, if you will, this part of worship in uh, the temple. Uh, The altar of incense stood before the curtain that separated the holy place, the sort of inner sanctuary, from the holy of holies, where uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant would, the seat of mercy and the Ark of the Covenant were. And there was a curtain between those, and there before the curtain was this altar of incense, and on this altar of incense was uh, incense that was offered morning and evening. That's kind of an interesting thing. They would light uh, the incense, it would fill with smoke and go up. Um, and while that was going on, the congregation was outside, and they were offering up prayers. And what these, this incense was, in effect, was uh, an image of the, of the prayers of the people rising up. The prayers of the priests and the people rising up to God. The priest mediating those prayers. And this happened morning and evening, day after day, week after week, year after year. And I think what Luke, with all these details, is preparing us for is that something is about to happen, both with these prayers and with this silence. And in that moment, an angel appears to Zechariah as he was... He was the one chosen by the casting of lots, and the casting of lots was just a means of saying, whose turn is it according to God? They cast lots, and they would assume that was God's choice, and they would go in, and there was Zechariah, the one chosen by God to enter into the holy place. And in that moment, an angel appeared to him. And as is the case with angels, whenever we see them, what's the response? Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. And here God breaks his silence. In this intimate encounter between this angel Gabriel and Zechariah, God speaks. You notice the language of angel of the Lord is used there to describe this angel. That was, that's, I'm going to look here in a moment just to sort of point you to all the rich uh, background of Old Testament that comes through in this passage. But that language of angel of the Lord Uh, is used very specifically throughout the Old Testament to talk about one who speaks as God himself in the Old Testament. 
So here the angel of the Lord comes and he is speaking. He is breaking silence and he is speaking to Zechariah. And his first words are, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Why? For your prayer has been heard. Do you notice it was very specific, singular, prayer has been heard. It's interesting. Presumably, he's offering up all sorts of prayers. The people are offering up all sorts of prayers. But here, there's a very specific prayer that's been heard. Now, it's hard to imagine and fathom what it's like to be faced with a messenger from the very throne room of God. What it, what it would be like to face the glorious creatures that, that are God's messengers to us. Um, it is enough to make us fall on our face and believe that our life is coming to an end. That's the kind of fear that is here. But here, his prayers have been heard. His particular prayer. And the particular prayer was that they could have a son. And more than just any son. It was a son who would himself be a prophet. And not just any prophet. But he would be a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. You can only imagine Zechariah at this moment um, just overwhelmed, flooded with emotion and wonder and awe. And I just want to do a, a, just think of, I just want to point this out. Really don't have time to spend any, any, any major time here, but I want us to understand that packed into this little dense section between verses 5 and 25 is a rich biblical theology. What is biblical theology? It is simply the unfolding of God's redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation. It's, it, if systematic theology is parsing out the particular uh, doctrines, biblical theology is like, is like the fabric that weaves the story of God's redemption together. Right? If, so you can think about biblical theology like that. And... Here, Luke does this thing. He, he begins here by packing into this account, the, into this birth account of John the Baptist, all this Old Testament background, themes and echoes and quotations. And interestingly, at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. Right? So at the front and the beginning, at the beginning and at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we have these two great sort of, Redemptive stories, if you will. At the end, Jesus walks along the road and says how all the Old Testament points to him. And here at the beginning, he's saying all that stuff about the Old Testament is pointing to this moment now. Jesus is coming. First John, then Jesus. It's an interesting that Luke, the Gentile doctor companion of Paul, would be so enamored with the ancient story. But he wants his friend, Theophilus, and all who would read this gospel to see that this story did not begin in Palestine with Jesus. It didn't begin with him. It is an ancient story of God redeeming a people for himself. And it began in the garden when the Lord promised that a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And it comes to a climax... At the incarnation, at this moment, Luke is saying, 
Get ready for a story because this is the climax. Everything that came before was just preparation. Even John, he's like the the penultimate preparation. But Christ is coming. The ultimate. And it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the incarnation. But it goes to the cross and the tomb and the ascension and the final conclusion when he comes again to judge the living and the dead and to bring his people home. Luke wants his readers to know this old, old story, this true story, this magnificent and glorious story of God speaking and acting over and over and over again. And so Luke begins here by tying this story of John's birth to the stories of the patriarchs, and to Hannah, and to Samson, and to Elijah, and to Isaiah, and to Daniel, and to Malachi. And you can go. I'm just going to leave that. You can go. You all have Bibles. If you don't, you can go online, get a Bible. They have cross-references, and you can look and see all the allusions and all the echoes that, that come out of this text. But Luke here wants you to know this is an old, old story. The miraculous child of Zechariah and Elizabeth was to be a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. God was on the move. That's, there's, a, there's a great scene from the book, um, A Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, which many of you probably are familiar with. Um, you know, the... the the Penzi's children are with um, uh, Beaver and his wife, and they're headed off to find Aslan. You remember, remember that, right? And they run across somebody in a sleigh. And it is coming up to that time of year, but who was that? Is that does any kid remember the story? Who is it? Yeah, Peter. Santa Claus, or Father Christmas, as he is called in the... In, in Great Britain, but yeah. And what's the tagline? What, why was that such an ordeal? Why was that so significant? It was, <laughs> it was because Aslan was on the move. Before that, it was always winter and never Christmas. And here it is. The barrenness and silence of God is broken. The messenger from the throne of God had come down to announce that John was coming to prepare the people for the coming king. God was on the move. No longer was it going to be silent and no longer was it going to be barren. But here's the really remarkable thing about this glorious act, this moment in the grand story of redemption. It happened to Zechariah and Elizabeth. What do I mean by that? It was deeply personal. The angel Gabriel says, your prayer has been answered. Their personal longing and heartache to to bear a child, to have a child, to, to know that joy was being answered in that moment. Yes, it was for all the people, right? It was, it, was, it was for the people to come and to hear 
that Jesus was coming and to know that they were to repent and believe. But it was given to Elizabeth and Zechariah. The people's prayers were being answered, but Zechariah's and Elizabeth's prayer for a child was being answered. And isn't that the way of the Lord? Yes, He does those big grand things. He comes, He came, He died, He rose again for our sins and He redeems us, but He cares for us in the midst of our deepest and most painful things of life. And sometimes he calls us to endurance, to wait. And sometimes he, he heals our wounds and brings us joy. And other times he does a mixture of both. He brings the salve of grace to our wounds. And then he calls us to be faithful and to endure. But in all of it, God is present. He speaks. And he acts. He speaks to us as his beloved children. And what are his words? His words are life. Just as the gracious words of this angel were the promise of this precious life, John, the Lord speaks to us words of life. And what does his, his words bring? Joy and gladness. That, that was what he said they would receive when they got this, this gift of this son, that they would have joy and gladness. John's life brought joy and gladness personally to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And his life brought joy and gladness to the people of Israel as he prepared the way for the coming king. John, that rock star prophet, right? What did he do when he came? He said, don't look at me. He who comes after me is greater than me. He brings joy and gladness. Well, this brings me to my concluding idea. Doubt and faith in response to this proclamation of life. Zechariah is one who gets a lot of attention at the beginning of the story, but in the end, it's Elizabeth. I always find that that just a... Uh, a neat note at the end, it's Elizabeth, and Elizabeth later will come out when she goes and she meets with Mary. But Zechariah, he asks, he's struck, he's dumped, he's struck by fear, right? When the, when the angel initially comes to him, he is like anyone else, he is struck by fear. And when that angel speaks to him, uh, I imagine it was an overwhelming thing, but it didn't so overwhelm him that he didn't have doubt. Did it? He couldn't comprehend how this could come to pass. Uh, Angel, I, I hear what you're saying, and I know you're from God, but I'm old. My wife is old. I don't think this is possible. What was the angel's response? I am Gabriel. That's his. It's the response. I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. I have come from the very throne of God and I have come down into this earthly temple to proclaim this good news to you. And because of your unbelief, though God is not silent, you will be. You're going to stop talking. 
hard to comprehend, right? Being visited by an angel and then questioning the angel. But honestly, who of us isn't like this? Despite overwhelming evidence that God is able and strong, that he is powerful, that he is loving, that he is gracious, and he is merciful, that his words are yes and amen, how often is it for us to go before God and say, yeah, but you can't fix me. I'm too much of a broken sinner. Or yeah, this issue, this sickness, this illness, this is beyond you. This pain and hurt that I feel can never be healed. We doubt. We doubt. But then there's Elizabeth. Elizabeth, uh, verse 24 says, After these days his wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. I don't know why. I, don't, I can't answer that question, and I don't know that anyone can, except maybe, maybe the, those five or six months, you know, you're not showing much. She had borne reproach long enough, and if she went out saying, hey, I'm pregnant, people would look at her and maybe have pity on her, kind of shake their head at her. I don't know, maybe. Whatever the case was, she hid herself for those six months until she was showing, but... Uh, her words are this. She is full of faith. She says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. What does that mean? When he had favor toward me. When he loved me. When he showed me mercy and grace. And he took away my reproach. She was overjoyed. Treasured these things up. I can't imagine what it was like for her to be sort of steeled away for, 15, for five months or whatever it was, six months. How to, to, to stay in that time frame without telling anybody this news and you have it and all you want to say is, I'm pregnant. I know some of you moms have been there. Probably all of you have been there. You're like, well, we can't tell people for a little while. And there's good reason you just want to say it. So what joy she had when she would go and visit Mary and there see the mother of her Savior. And John would leap in his womb as he confronted and met with uh, Jesus himself in the womb. She had great faith. And I think it brings a question to us. When God brings difficult situations, whatever they are, when he feels like he's being silent, and when we go to his word and we read the glorious hope of the gospel that Jesus indeed has come and that he has come to redeem us and to transform our lives and to make us new, and when we read those words, do we sit back and say, I don't think it's possible? Or do we, like Elizabeth, treasure it up? Trust in this one who has faith. Friends, as we come to a time of the year when we get to celebrate the incarnation, let's, like Elizabeth, treasure it as we approach the, the, the day of celebration and anticipation. Let's, let's treasure it. And let's 
Say with her, thus the Lord has done for us in the days when he looked on us, when he was merciful to us, and he took away our barrenness and gave us life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we